Shelf Esteem is brought to you by the City of Port Adelaide Enfield Libraries. Hello and welcome to the first edition of Shelf Esteem. Today we're uncovering some grisly details from South Australia's deep dark past with Associate Professor Samantha Baddams. Her book, The Secret Art of Poisoning, is available now at your local city of Port Adelaide Enfield Library, and Samantha met your hosts Warwick and Sonia at the Parks Library Media Room to record this discussion about the book. We are honoured to have a very special guest for our first podcast, author of the book, The Secret Art of Poisoning, Samantha Battams. Welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks very much, Warwick. And I just want to say how wonderful this new library is here at the park. So I didn't actually know it was here. So a little bit about myself. I am a public health academic. I've been teaching and research in public health and also in global health in Switzerland. And for the last 10 years, I've been writing two nonfiction history books, which have both been published this year and their biographical stories about South Australians from the past. So for listeners who are unfamiliar with the book, can you tell us a little bit about what it's about? My first book, The Secret Art of Poisoning, The True Crimes of Martha Needle, the Richmond Poisoner, is about a woman from the late 19th century who had a very troubled background. Uh, She grew up in South Australia and then moved to Victoria where she committed a horrendous crime. So she was a multiple murderer and murdered her husband and then two of her children and then her new fiancé's brother before finally getting caught and then she was hung in the old Melbourne jail in 1894. Would you like to read us a section of the book to give our listeners a little taste of the story? Sure. I've actually chosen a poem written by Martha Needle herself and um, she was a very romantic character and she was desperately in love with Otto Yunkin, her new fiancé, but there were some obstacles because his family was quite against the match. So this is one poem that she writes to Otto. To a dear one, Otto, they would give thee to another, they would break thy vow, they would give thee to another, and my heart is lonely now. They remember not my sorrow, they remember not my tears, they would sever in one fatal hour the tenderness of years. But is it well to leave me? Wouldst thou so deceive me? by Martha Needle. It's beautiful. (laughs) It really is a fascinating story. We were just wondering, when did you first hear of Martha Needle? So I was researching a story about the pioneer aviator Harry Butler and the Smith Brothers' um, epic flight um, landing in South Australia from um, the UK. So the first ever UK to Australia flight. And during that same week, it was the end of um, March, early April 1920, there was a huge story that hit the newspaper and it appeared bigger than um, the reporting on the Smith Brothers landing back in Adelaide. And it was a story of one Alexander Newland Lee who apparently murdered three of his seven children as well as his wife on um, Good Friday 1920. And... 
um, it was a huge case. So it was a very rare crime at the time and people were waiting outside the courts to get in. They were actually climbing over the gates of, you know, the Court of Adelaide. They were so interested in the case. And when I um, Googled Alexander Newland Lee to see, you know, what I could find out about him, I was shocked to discover a website um, called Macabre Melbourne, which doesn't exist now. But at the bot- at, on one page there was a profile of Martha Needle and at the bottom a relative of um, both of them had put... Actually, her nephew committed the same crimes. His name was Alexander Newland Lee. That's how I got to find out about Martha Needle, that, you know, this is something that had um, repeated itself in the family. So that was quite shocking. What was it that drew you to actually write the book about Martha? In the old newspapers, there were so many different stories about who Martha Needle actually was and what her motivations were for the crime. And I was quite puzzled because they were so contradictory and I was sort of, I'm interested in a bit of mystery and intrigue and I wanted to get to the truth of the matter. Who actually was she? Some said that she was a well-to-do woman, that she was always very well presented and she was from, you know, the old photographs. She she was quite a beautiful woman in, in nice um, dress. And then others said that she was in dire poverty and that she killed her husband and and children for the insurance money at the time. Others sort of alluded to um, some kind of um, mental health issues and others talked about her being calculating and manipulative and that was the main discourse, that she was very conniving, fully conscious of you know, what she was doing. And I couldn't quite reconcile the stories. So I was really interested to find out the truth. And part of the truth is that she did come from an extremely poor background. Her family was in and out of the destitute asylum in Adelaide. However, I um, also found out that her half-brother did extremely well. And he actually set up Um, a building business that built most of the suburbs in um, the inner west here in Adelaide, so around um, Richmond and Hindmarsh. And at one stage he um, was the licensee for the Grange Hotel. And so he actually did very well, but for poor women there was a a different um, trajectory. So some of the story relates directly to this area, Port Adelaide, Birkenhead and even the Fitzjames Reformatory ship uh, that was moored off Largs. Do you think things would have turned out differently if the family hadn't ventured to Melbourne or would her mental state and the economics of the time in South Australia have led to a similar outcome wherever they were? I think um, part of the sort of strong context for this is the economic depression of the... um, 1890s. So a lot of these um, murders and similar crimes of um, baby farmers where people were looking after children for, you know, a very low sum and then did away with them. These weren't uncommon crimes um, at the time in Victoria and New South Wales. There are a number of stories where, you know, babies were found in the Yarra River. So that was quite tragic. And There was also some similar stories in other states. But the authorities knew the family, the police knew the family, the church knew the family. And I wonder if in South Australia that um, 
suspicions may have been aroused sooner because it was a smaller place and, and people actually knew each other, especially the church, and they were avid churchgoers. So I did wonder about that. There was also the question of John Ferran, and at one stage Martha's mother sues both um, John and Martha for money, and they both claim that, you know, they're poor, but I've subsequently found out that John actually became quite wealthy. So I'm wondering if he would have been able to support her financially. But her background was the same, the terrible physical um, and um, sexual and emotional abuse that she experienced was the same. So I think that would have arisen, um, that would have led to the same mental health issues and so I think she would have had um, you know similar issues in in relationships um, that you know she experienced but yeah it is a difficult question. Mm. So the book features a number of prominent South Australians was there any that you particularly admired while you were researching? Yes um, I have a um, autobiography of Catherine Helen Spence and I have previously written a short story about her because I used to live on Queen Street Norwood where Catherine Helen Spence lived. So I looked into her and also found that um, Mary McKillop and um, May Gibbs both lived on the same street which I I felt very privileged to live there after I read about that. Um, So To me, like Catherine Helen Spence was an amazing woman that we probably don't know enough about in South Australia. And I know that, you know, there's the um, Spence wing at the State Library and there's a bust of her in Light Square where she first um, arrived with her family and set up. So she was a journalist who, I understand, wrote the first novel about Australia and but she was a really strong advocate, especially for women and children and um, women's suffrage. So she set up the first boarding out scheme for children, which was copied throughout the world. And she also set up the first secondary school for girls in around 1875 in South Australia. So the first public um, secondary school. And she also um, advocated um, with Mary Lee for women's suffrage and also advocated for um, proportional representation voting, which is the current system of voting that we use at at the moment. I think it's called the Hare-Clark system. And she was also the first female political candidate and the first um, female preacher in the Unitarian Church. And she also wrote a scandalous book called The Handfasted that was actually banned until the 1980s because it talked about trial marriage or living together without being married. And um, I was just astonished that, um, you know, it was considered too radical until the 1980s. And, um, you know, it's something that which is now quite commonplace and it's seen, you know, like a trial marriage. But she was a very independent woman and apparently she'd been offers of marriage a couple of times, which she turned down. She had a very strong role in supporting her family. But I'd like to read something that she said in an an address. So she toured the world lecturing and was, you know, a proponent for this um, system of voting. And in her Chicago address on effective voting in 1893, she said... It is said that many of us women spend our lives in waiting for the coming man who often does not come at all 
And sometimes when he does come, she might have well been better off without him. I have waited long enough for the coming man, and I, as a single woman, have had to take up lecturing myself, and, in point of fact, I have done fairly well, both with life and with lecturing. So she was a very modern woman of her time, and, you know, she was sort of the master of, or mistress of her own destiny, if you like. Oh, I didn't know too much about her myself. I'm going to have to do some more research into her, I think. (laughs) I think I'm going to have to read that book. Yes. (laughs) How differently do you think this would have played out if she was born in the modern era? And do you think a story like Martha's could happen again today? It's interesting you should ask that because I sort of vaguely followed the case of um, Emily Perry, who was also from South Australia. It was a case from the 1980s. So Emily Perry was accused of killing her husband in South Australia before the conviction was quashed and also of murdering a former husband in Victoria. And it was also suggested that she'd murdered her brother and another de facto spouse um, had suffered from arsenic poisoning before his death from a drug overdose. So in both the Emily Perry case and the Martha Needle case, um, they use similar fact evidence um, from, you know, other parts of their life or other cases in the case they were actually tried for, so Emily Perry being, you know, convicted of, you know, murdering her, you know, husband and also um, Martha was convicted for um, the death of Lewis Yunkin, her fiancé's brother. But, of course, they, you know, dug up her former husband and, and her children. And But, interestingly, six months before Martha's case, a law was passed which was meant to prevent um, other similar fact evidence being drawn into the case tried unless there were very strong cogent reasons. So there was sort of a question as to whether some of that previous evidence should have been drawn into um, the current um, case. And whilst I was um, researching the Martha Needle book, at one stage I was living in Switzerland and I did come across, um, you know, some similar crimes. There was one crime in France um, in 2010 when I first started researching the case where a woman was on trial for um, six baby murders and in another one in 2009 where a woman was um, ki- accused of killing three of her children. So these are fairly recent cases. And I also followed the Kelly Lane case where, you know, she's been, um, was found guilty for the murder of, you know, one of her children. She was born in 1975, I noted too. And that was recently um, the subject of a documentary called Exposed. So there was, there's similar cases that are happening, but um, I'm just wondering, you know, in this society, of Martha's Day, there was a lot less regulation of, you know, the administration of poisons. It seemed to be that she was um, doctor shopping, which is much more monitored, so pharmacy and doctor shopping. But I think one of the problems we've got in this day and age is that the fabric of society is less strong. We don't have, you know, church or, um, you know, people don't know their neighbours as much. So I think sometimes crimes are sort of cut away with because, you know, there's that less familiarity and and the social fabric or the social capital in society is sort of has been diminished. So I'd have to agree with that, I think. (laughs) So while this story revolves around Martha and the crimes that she was accused of, 
the support that she received from Otto, her would-be fiancé, found really intriguing. Were you surprised by his role when you started researching the novel? I was a bit surprised, but also I became a huge admirer of Otto Yunkin because to me, he's a real hero of the story. Um, Not only was he devoutly religious, but he had a, a deep care for Martha and he obviously had a big heart as well and he was looking out for her, making sure that, um, you know, her friends were visiting the jail, almost pleading, you know, in letters to friends saying, you know, I hope you're okay. We're all organising to meet at, you know, two o'clock this afternoon. Hope you can make it um, and getting the friends together. Um, and he seemed to be acutely aware of her mental health issues because he's he'd witnessed firsthand, you know, her catatonia, Um, her hearing voices, her disassociation and, you know, her not knowing him at some stages. So he was really aware of that. Um, And initially he he seemed to think that, you know, she could be innocent. But then when the evidence was presented to him in court, uh, he seemed to come to the conclusion that, you know, she must have committed the crimes, but she wasn't fully aware of what she'd done. yeah, he was an admirable character and then he went on, of course, to great things through his work and established um, Hanson and Yunkin, which has built many prominent buildings around, um, especially South Australia and Victoria. So I I think, um, yeah, he's a real hero of the story because, you know, there was rumours after Martha's death that he'd committed suicide or died by suicide, but... Um, his um, brother-in-law was a journalist at the Port Adelaide and Lefevre Peninsula newspaper and they owned actually that newspaper. His father owned it and then he owned it. So he got his voice um, and his opinions on the case expressed through an article in that newspaper which um, I use later on in the story. So he's basically saying, you know, the rumours of his death are false and... No, he sort of gives his opinion on the case, which I think is the only real truth. You know, there's a lot of mistruths reported about him and his opinions. And, um, you know, he was a real survivor. He he could have um, crumbled at the fact that, you know, he's got with this woman who's killed his brother and tried to kill another brother and, you know, he was kind of an innocent victim. He could have... Um, he could have just whittled away, but, you know, no, he sort of committed himself to his work, achieved great things, started a family, a dynasty, which he didn't He didn't talk about, you know, what happened in the past and he just went on with things. So I think we can take something from, you know, what Otto has done. Maybe Otto's life will be a sequel. <laughs> he almost seems to warrant his own book. <laughs> Did you find anything interesting while you were researching that you didn't end up using in the book? Well, I did have two chapters that I took out and the two chapters were about Alexander Newland Lee. So it was about his crimes um, and that was interesting and actually that's going to be the sequel. But what struck me about that story is how similar Martha's story and his story were in some respects because... Otto Yunkum was from the Barossa Valley. He was German-speaking. His family came from a German-speaking part of what we'd now consider Denmark. 
And there's Alexander Newland Lee, a generation later, falling in love with a young German housemaid at the Willows Hospital in the Barossa Valley, and she's the innocent victim in the story. Um, I don't know what it is about the Barossa Valley, but um, in the 1920s, there was a lot of animosity towards the Germans in the Barossa Valley, even though they had escaped religious persecution themselves in Prussia. You know, as, you know, 69 German town names were, were changed and there was frequently people talking about the Germans not changing their spots and there was a lot of negative um, letters to the editor about Germans and, you know, saying, oh, they call themselves Lutherans but, you know, they've ripped off Angus through the South Australian Company, um, one particular flaxman who was meant to be the agent of um, Angus but actually um, purchased land himself in the Barossa and was acting on his own behalf. You know, he was given as a bad example uh, of one of these um, Germans. So there was a huge amount of animosity and I think that um, influenced the vulnerability of... um, the victim in Alexander Newland Lee's story, the young German outsider um, whose mother had died young. You know, she was only a teenager. So she was a very vulnerable, innocent woman. And I think there were sort of some similar themes there, although Alexander Lee seemed to be much, much more calculated in the way he went about his crimes and um, his love interest, who, by the way, her nickname was Dolly. She really was, you know, a plaything and he lied to her, you know, and uh, she was a very innocent victim. But in the court case, she was accused of being a prostitute. So, and that sort of, um, the anti-German sentiment really fed into that court case. So, um, yeah, that's the story I'm doing, looking at now. This this area also relates to that with the Torrens Island internment camp um, yes. that was used in World War One. Yes, um, and so so the, that relates directly to this area as well. The animosity towards Germans during that period. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. Very and then Peter Monte's just written a book about about that. And actually, one of my my stepfather's father worked at the Love Day internment camp, which was the largest one in Australia, and they farmed um, poppies for opium for the drugs during the war. Um, but there was lots of um, there was a huge mix of um, cultures within the within the camp. And there was a lot of conflict, but there was a lot of people who, you know, who were the great grandchild of uh, of a German that had arrived fleeing religious persecution in the 1830s. But, yeah, there were lots of letters to the editor around the time and one I recently read was saying we should intern the Germans as enemy aliens if they don't publicly come out and state that they're loyal to the British Crown. So that's sort of a really interesting context around that case. How do you find the time to write and research around all of your other work as well? That you well, do? that's a good question and sometimes I don't. So I did start this um, story in 2010, um, but at the end of 2010 I went to Switzerland and, and lived there for three years. So I st- I've worked on and off on the story um, and on evenings and weekends, but sometimes I've had a really demanding 
role or, you know, when I first moved back from Adelaide, from Switzerland to Adelaide, I wasn't actually doing much writing, but I was, you know, had a vision that this book was going to get out because I'd done enough work on it and research that I was really um, determined to stick with it. So having, you know, the writing goal and sticking to it and not giving up and having that stickability I think is really important and not being too hard on yourself if you if you don't, you know, have time to write. Um, We're but really glad that you stuck with it. We <laughs> both really enjoyed it. Um, so you said that you're planning on releasing a book on Alexander Newland Lee. Are there any other ideas that you're planning on following up or is that just the only one that you're thinking about at the moment? Well... Just getting back to the Barossa Valley, I found out only uh, fairly late in life my ancestry because my father was adopted in 1997. The law was changed to enable me to, you know, do research to find out, you know, what his ancestry is. And lo and behold, it ends up in the Barossa Valley. So one of my ancestors, my great, great, great grandfather was Johan Gramp and he wasn't from Prussia. He was actually from Bavaria the South Australian company got two boatloads of um, Germans over to help them establish the colony of South Australia and they, and they weren't necessarily Prussians. Um, so they first set up on the um, Kangaroo Island and then um, he basically helped to establish the wharf at Port Adelaide and then eventually got land in the Barossa Valley and set up the first commercial winery in the Barossa Valley, which is now um, Jacobs Creek, Orlando, and earned by um, Perno Ricca. So that was the very first commercial winery he set up. So that's one story. Another story is also (laughs) related to family, and that was about a a great-great-grandmother who's come from the UK to New Zealand, and then Victoria and um, her second husband, which wasn't my forebear, but he was a very scandalous charlatan, spiritualist and head of the Free Christian Assembly, which was a cult-like group in Victoria. And he used um, spiritual um, faith healing for unsound purposes and was fraternising with lots of young women and it made the papers of you know Victoria. My grandmother ended up leaving him, which was very, very rare at the time. And um, he sort of went on to bigger and better things and was travelling with this um, clairvoyant and doing shonky charlatan shows. And at one stage his um, companions arrested under the police act and um, for um, giving misleading information through clairvoyance. So it's kind of a really interesting story because it was in the papers at the time and now I can better understand why my grandfather on that side left Victoria. <laughs> It's really interesting. It's amazing what you can find when you start digging up your family history, yeah. isn't it? Are we looking forward to reading those, aren't we, Warwick? <laughs> what do you like to read in your spare time, if you have any spare time? And do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Yeah, um, I just also mentioned that my next book has just come out and that's about a pioneer aviator from South Australia and he was a hero just post-World War One, and that's called The Red Devil, the story of the... Um, pioneer aviator Captain Harry Butler. So we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of his first flight across water in the Southern Hemisphere with um, airmail as well coming up in August. So um, that's out right now. But in terms of what I like to read, I like to read historical nonfiction and I've got more into that as I've 
written historical nonfiction, especially biographies with female protagonists. Something that I read um, last year which I enjoyed was The Fabulous Flying Mrs Miller by Carol Baxter and she was a scandalous female Australian aviator from the 1920s and 30s and there's a murder in, in that book as well and I'd never previously heard of her but she was involved in all of these air races in in America. She was right up there, one of the most prominent female aviators and she was Australian, one of the only Australians who was an early aviator and I didn't actually know that. Also, I read Miss Muriel Matters, the Australian actress who became one of London's most famous suffragists by Robin Wainwright, and she was an amazing woman from South Australia as well, and I sort of really enjoy reading about that period. Mm. I also really enjoyed The Ship That Never Was, The Greatest Escape Story of Australian Colonial History by Adam Courtney, and that comes back to South Australia as well because the grandfather of Wally Shires who was one of the engineers on the Smith Brothers epic flight from UK to Australia, was actually, yeah, the grandfather was one of the escapees in The Great Escape. So that was basically a ship built by convicts and taken to South America by the convicts who built the ship. I also really enjoyed True Gert by David Hunt and that is Australian history told hilariously. That's really laugh out loud stuff. So I really recommend that. It's really funny sort of quirky stories from the past. And also for those interested in a bit of Port Adelaide history, I really enjoyed Hunger Town by Wendy Scarf. So that's a novel um, which is largely set in Port Adelaide in the Depression years. You've got another little reading that you wanted to do from your book. Um, yeah. Take it away. <laughs> okay. So um, as I was going through the old newspapers, I was constantly amused at um, the language used and, and the satire, especially of the New Zealand newspapers. So this is a New Zealand newspaper talking about the death of Martha Needle. In the Melbourne jail recently, Mrs Martha Needle, pressed by circumstances and accord, retired from active life, leaving a void in the toxicological business which it would be difficult to fill. That was the Bay of Plenty Times in November 1894. It's great how they wrote things up in the papers back in those days, isn't it? Yeah. You wouldn't read that now. No, no. No, it's highly amusing and, um, yeah, opinions were very free as was um, satire, but, yeah, they're very entertaining. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us for our first podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Sonia and Warwick. I really enjoyed it and I hope the listeners did too and enjoy the book. Associate Professor Samantha Baddams was discussing her book, The Secret Art of Poisoning, available now at your local City of Port Adelaide Enfield Library. And that's it for our very first edition. Next time, Warwick and Sonia will review John Lanchester's dystopian new novel, The Wall. But in the meantime, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at City of PAE Libraries. You can visit our website, cityofpae.sa.gov.au slash library, or get in touch via email, library at cityofpae.sa.gov.au. This has been Shelf Esteem, produced and engineered by Luke Eigenram at the Parks Library Media Room, Angle Park. 
This edition was hosted by Sonia Lawrence and Warwick Conway with music by Lee Rosevere.